You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Cole Kirby, and I have the joy and the honor of serving here at Sojourn Montrose as a parish leader of the Hazard Street Parish, so I cannot encourage you enough to engage with uh, the ways of connection that Reed told you about. Um, And I will just extend an invitation to you. If you're a visitor and you want to know what it's like to be part of the people of God here at Sojourn Montrose, my neighborhood parish meets upstairs at my house on on Wednesday nights at 7. So we'd love to have you. Uh, We'll provide you with food and, and hopefully friendship. Um, and so, so that is my encouragement, is to get plugged in. Um, not only do I serve here as a parish leader, but I'm transitioning into the role of serving here as a church planting resident, which essentially means that, that I'll be an intern of sorts, um, getting trained, equipped, and hopefully by God's grace qualified um, to plant a new neighborhood church here in Houston in the next few years. Um, so I'd love to talk more with you about that afterward in the gallery if you have any questions about that. Um, and I'll just be very honest and say that right now I'm in the fundraising portion of getting ready for that. And so if you want to talk about that, I'd, I'd love to talk how you can support church planting monetarily. Um, so so as, as we get started, we are in the third week of our series in Job. Um, and we're, we'll be in chapter 16, and, and that doesn't really mean that we've preached 15 chapters of Job the last two weeks, um, but, but we're just kind of doing a helicopter view of the book of Job um, as we look at, at what it looks like um, to experience suffering, uh, to walk through suffering with one another, and what God's role is in the midst of our suffering. Um, last week, um, we were in chapters 9 and 10. And we saw that Job longed for an arbiter to come between him and God. An arbiter who could lay hands on both God and man to make sense and peace in the midst of the disaster that Job experienced. Um, And and for those of you who maybe missed it and aren't familiar with Job, uh, Job was a righteous man, a wealthy man with a big family. um, And and God really allowed all of those things to be taken from him. And and so he's, he's left without... Um, his possessions without his family and without his health. And so we're, we're looking at how he experiences suffering. And he was longing for this arbiter. And we, and we discussed that, that last week that suffering is ultimately God's mercy toward his people rather than his wrath toward their sin. Um, and, and this is because we can trust that the arbiter Job longed for has come in the form of Jesus who absorbed God's entire wrath toward our sin in our stead and now mediates between us and God. And and, and we discussed Job's friends briefly. We talked about how they were both loving friends with good intentions, but but they didn't execute that love and wisdom and offered unsolicited advice and and unhelpful banter. And so so really, as we read chapter 16, what we're going to find is there's a lot of the same themes going on. And this is something that I struggled with as I, I, was, as I was preparing this week um, because I was afraid, oh, no, I'm just going to preach the same sermon that I preached last week. Um, and as I, as I thought through it and prayed through it, um, I realized a couple of things. Um, one, I don't think that we can hear enough that God is good, graceful, and merciful toward us in our suffering. And so if a lot of the themes are the same as last week, we probably just need to hear it again. 
Because when the Spirit inspired the author to pin Job, he knew that it would be repetitive. But he also knew that his people would probably need it to be repetitive. And moreover, there are nuances in this text that are going to point us more fully toward Christ. Last week we talked, that, talked about how Jesus was the arbiter that Job longed for, but this week we're going to be talking about how ultimately Job is an imperfect picture of Jesus and, and how Jesus ultimately fulfilled the suffering of Job in a whole new way. Uh, and and so, so really with that, I'm going to pray and we're going to dive into the text and, and see what the Lord has for us. Lord, you're good. We worship you. We worship you that, um, that in the midst of suffering, we can bless your name um, because of your faithfulness to us in Jesus. We worship you that, that in the midst of confusion, we can put our hope in you uh, because you're not a God of confusion. We worship you that, that in the midst of trials that even you bring about in our lives, that you are also our only steadfast and true salvation from those things. Um, so, so would you turn our hearts um, through your spirit to know you more, Lord Jesus? Would you reveal yourself to be not only the man of sorrows and the suffering servant, but our Lord, our Savior, and our lover? Use your, use your text this morning to speak um, rather than my mouth. I pray that, that you would use our time together for, for our good and for your glory, um, that we would know you more and that some of us might even know you for the first time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So before we, we jump into the text, um, there, there's a theme that we're going to see early on that I, that I want to address. Um, as a Christian, and as especially as someone who is somewhat of a Christian leader, when I meet people and they find this out about me, um, often they will apologize for having used bad language in our conversation before that, or, or something to that extent, or, or having done something that's unbecoming, as, as if they believe in, in karma or, or some moralistic way of thinking in which if they do something bad and God sees that, then bad is going to happen to them. Um, it's also one of my big pet peeves, and if you know me well, you know that I'm very particular and I have quite a few pet peeves, and one of them is when especially people who identify as Christians blame things on karma, Th that they say, oh, well, th that good thing happened to you because you must have had good karma. Like, you must have done enough good works that God has blessed you in this way, or vice versa, oh no, I've, I'm probably building up bad karma and should expect some suffering to come my way because I, I did the wrong thing. And, and really, people that say that, that, are, that identify as Christians, or, or generally most Westerners, don't actually believe in karma in the Buddhist or Hindu way of thinking in, in which it would affect their rebirth and, and really the whole world works in this cosmic balance of good and bad and, and reaping what you sow to the extreme. That, that's not what, what most people who say something about karma believe. Ultimately, what they're revealing about themselves is that they're moralists. That, that ultimately, they believe that because they're moralists, God must operate in exact response to good and bad actions of people. 
this is, it's a logical way of thinking. If God is good and he's just and he's holy, then, then obviously he must operate to our ex- expectations of what it means to be good, just, and holy. And so if we do bad things, we're going to experience bad things. And if we do good things, we're going to experience good things. And, and ultimately, as Christians, there is no place for this sort of moralism. Our worldview does not allow for it. A moralist would look at the suffering of the righteous man Job as a scandal. Consider what they might think of the cross. Moralists in academia have historically called the the cross divine child abuse as God tortures his beloved and perfect son. But we know that's not the case. But Job's friends don't know that's not the case. Job's friends are moralists. And and for chapters upon chapters, they've been in this conversation with Job. Essentially, that comes down to, Job, you must deserve this. This horrible thing that you're experiencing must be because you've done something bad to earn it. Because otherwise, I have no place in my, my mind to be able to comprehend how God might be just in that. I have no way to understand how he might be good in that, if you're experiencing this suffering. Last week, we briefly addressed that, that suffering is, is God's mercy toward us. But Job's friends don't understand that. They're moralists because they don't have any category for grace in their mindset. And so really, as we see a lot of suffering going on in, in our communities and the world around us, your response to those things and your language toward those things probably reveal whether or not you're a moralist. And if you're a moralist, you're likely a miserable comforter to those who are suffering. That, that's what we're going to see is Job is going to cry out at the beginning of chapter 16 to his friends, miserable comforters are you. And so have you looked upon the suffering of, of certain communities within our society uh, as, as justice and de- deservation? Have you voiced that? If so, you've, you've been a miserable comforter to those that are suffering. There is a time and a place to talk about justice. There is a time and a place to talk about reaping what you sow and to talk about the consequences for sin and poor behavior. But in the midst of calamity, if all we can point to is, you probably deserve this, then that makes us miserable comforters. And as Christians, we cannot be miserable comforters. Uh, Ultimately, because we do have a category for grace. So chapter 16, verses 1 through 6, read this way. Then Job answered and said, Job answered his his friends, the miserable comforters. I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have no end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth. And the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Job refers to his friends as miserable comforters, really which is an oxymoron that, 
that makes a great point. They aren't good at their job, is what Job is saying. You have a job, and you're blowing it. And their job is to comfort him, when in fact they bring about more misery for Job as they attack him, accuse him, and provide unhelpful and insensitive advice. Job argues to his friends that that he would be a better comforter were the roles reversed. Were they suffering, Job, Job really through sarcasm explains to him that he would be better. He says, yeah, if if you were suffering, I could sit in your shoes and tell you how wrong you probably are and how much you deserve it. I could accuse you of wrongdoing. But in verse 5, he says, I could strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. Job is pointing out that ultimately he knows what he needs much better than his friends do. What he needs in the midst of his suffering is for his friends to comfort him, to strengthen him with their mouths, to offer solace and sympathy rather than unsolicited advice and accusation. Job's friends are unhelpful because they're moralists and they believe God is operating according to their moralism. They don't have an understanding from grace. And we can learn from this to see that when those around us are in the midst of suffering and grief, our advice or comments about someone reaping what they sow only pours gasoline on the fire of misery. Moreover, as Christians, we understand grace. And because of this, we can offer true love, compassion, and comfort to those who need it. In other words, if you're in Christ and you've experienced God's grace offered through Jesus in the cross and his resurrection, you have no excuse to be a miserable comforter because you've experienced comfort from God that far surpasses anything you could offer someone. We don't need to theologize the sufferings of others or or make them logical equations in our head. And we certainly don't need to interpret their pain for them. We can weep alongside our friends, pray on the behalf of our community, and join them in the confusion of suffering because we don't have to, nor can we make it go away. Your job is not to make the suffering of your friends go away, the suffering of those around you go away. Your job is to be a comforter. And we learn from Job's friends how not to do that. But we know the one who can make it go away. And and that is why we can be good comforters. Because we can run to him, Jesus, with them. And and so after Job cries out that his friends are miserable comforters, we see that, that Job has this very honest passage where he's honest both with his friends and with God. Verses seven through nine, the thesis statement is simply, God has become my enemy. Job says, surely now God has worn me out. He's made me desolate, all my company. And he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He's gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Job says, God has made me tired. He's made me hungry. 
He's made my body weak and skinny. He's made me lonely and lonely and taken my health. And more than that, he's hated me. And he punishes me with his wrath. That's an honest confession. He goes on in verse 10 to say that, that God has shamed him with his enemies. Men have gaped at me, it says, with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. Job says, not only has God become my enemy, but he's made men my enemies as well. They're, they're scoffing at me. They're making a spectacle of me. The people that surround me join in with God in bringing me to shame and despair. This confession is, of Job's is, is one that I think rings true with almost anyone who's experienced suffering. This feeling that everyone around you sees it and doesn't care and just continues to pour coals on it and make it worse. This feeling of loneliness and desolation this feeling that nobody around you could help because they're so busy making it worse. And in the midst of Job saying that God has become his enemy and God has shamed him with his human enemies, verses 12 through 17, Job says, ultimately God has exposed me to this. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth on my, upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping, and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. Job says all of this was in God's control, and he's chosen to expose me to it. I'm surrounded, and I'm vulnerable to attack. <laughs> and the weapons of attack are in plain sight. I'm being destroyed against my will, but it's not against God's will. It was his will that I should endure this. <laughs> That's honesty. That, that is not only honesty, but it's desperation. It's hopelessness. But, but what we can see is of these three main themes here, that God is his enemy that God has shamed him with his enemies, and that God has exposed him to this, that the two primary ones are that God is his enemy and that God has exposed him to this. And what we can know is that one of those is true and one of those is not true. It is true that God exposed Job to this suffering. But Job is wrong to say that God is his enemy. We can say that Job's perception of God as his enemy is wrong. And even still, we can learn from him as he honestly makes known his suffering both to God and to his friends. Job's suffering, though he doesn't yet know it, 
is God's redemptive and merciful work in his life. He's being protected from loving the things of the world as they're stripped away from him. Suffering is ultimately a product of the fall. The suffering that Job is experiencing is something that began with Adam's sin in the garden. But it is not only a product of the fall. Suffering is the means through which redemption happens. Suffering is the means by which we are saved. Verse 18, we begin to see this theme. O earth, cover not my blood. And let my cry find no resting place. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire book of Job. Because Job's voice and blood are crying out for vindication. With Adam's sin in the garden, suffering entered the world. And soon after, human blood was shed for the first time as Cain rose up against his brother Abel. In Genesis, we read that Abel's blood cried out from the ground for vindication. And here we see that Job hopes his blood will follow suit as it accompanies his voice sounding off for relief. Last week, we discussed that God ordains suffering as a mercy toward us because it allows us to know Christ more deeply as the one who suffered in our stead. And verses 7 through 18 show Job to be an imperfect picture of the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. Last week, I mentioned that Job, though a man of sorrows and a suffering servant, is not the man of sorrows or the suffering servant. And after seeing the language Job used here in chapter 16 to describe the ways he has experienced his suffering as he feels hated by God and by men, and as he is completely exposed to the attacks that are coming his way. Let's look at Isaiah 53 and and look at what the prophet Isaiah tells of what Jesus will experience and has now experienced. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3, the prophet writes of the future Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and from one whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him smitten and stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they make his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, 
although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Job thinks that he has been torn in God's wrath and hated by God. In Isaiah 53, we see that the man of sorrows, Jesus, was truly pierced for our transgressions. And it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And in this, he bore the sin of many. Job felt shamed by his accusers and enemy. Christ was despised and esteemed not as they made his grave with the wicked. Job felt exposed to suffering by God and was so. Toward Christ, however, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he was oppressed and afflicted. He was exposed as a lamb that is led to slaughter. He was put to grief by God. As we can see, Job chapter 16 is a beautiful foreshadowing of what is to come in Christ. But Job is still an imperfect picture of what Christ will be. In verse 19, Job says, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God, as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall Go the way from which I shall not return. Job concludes here that his perfect witness is in heaven. And this is really interesting. And really, whom Job is referring to is a topic that scholars debate. Many claim that Job thought there to be an angel or some heavenly host that was testifying on his behalf. Others claim that Job was referring directly to the Godhead or the future Christ as both his accuser and his defender. Some find this problematic as it would create a courtroom of sorts in which God would be divided against himself. But in the end, on this side of history, we can't know exactly what Job is thinking at the time that he realized what he was thinking at the moment, but one thing is clear. Sometime between last week and chapter 9 and now, Job realized that the mediator and the arbiter he hoped for exists. How that happened, we're not told. And we can safely say that whether Job knew it or not, 
This heavenly witness was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Where Job hoped that his voice and blood would cry out for vindication and that heavenly being would testify on his behalf, Christ's blood brought about lasting and real vindication and justification. And his voice cried out on the cross, it is finished. Romans 8 verse 33 through 39 give us a look into the fullness of this heavenly courtroom in which there's a heavenly witness testifying on behalf of his people. Paul writes, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things to come, nor things present, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Job's suffering, his voice, and his blood are all foreshadowing for what will fully be accomplished in Jesus. Job's suffering doesn't bring about redemption, but it has a redemptive quality in his spirit because of the redemptive suffering of Christ that brings forgiveness and life everlasting. Job's voice surely did ring out on the earth, and God surely heard it. But Christ's voice called the earth into being, and it announced the completion of the labor of suffering that began in the Garden of Eden. Against his wishes, Job's blood would eventually seep into the earth and be covered. But Christ's blood is an ever-flowing, covenant-marking solution to sin, death, and suffering. And the earth did not ultimately cover up the blood of Christ as he rose from the dead and conquered the grave. This makes the sacrament of communion so meaningful as we, in a truly spiritual sense, take in the blood of Christ that constantly cries out for our vindication and justice. And take part in his body that was torn in wrath that we don't have to be. Job is a beautiful yet imperfect picture of Christ in his suffering. And as Christians, when we suffer, we also show Christ to the world in a beautiful yet imperfect way. So what do we draw from this? The first thing that we can draw from it is we see in chapter 16 verse 19, Job looking to heaven in times of trial. And this is, this is a theme that we've seen earlier in Job, though not in the sermon series. In chapter 13 verse 15, Job cries out, Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Job knew that the only Savior capable of fighting for him and healing him 
was the same God that brought suffering upon him. And we can learn from that. We can learn from from Job and from others in Scripture that when disaster falls our way or when things are really difficult or really confusing and God seems to be against us or not trustworthy, that he is still our only hope. We see the prophet Habakkuk saying at the end of his writing where he's talking about enemies coming against the nation of Israel. He, he recites a beautiful poem in which he says, though the fig tree should not blossom and fruit be on the vine and, and though all the livestock is gone and all the crops fail and, and everything is bad, he says, still I will hope in God because he sets my feet on high places. We see similarly in, in the Gospel of John Jesus has a teaching in which he tells his disciples and the other people gathered um, that to experience life in him, that they need to cannibalize him. He, He says, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And and he didn't say, and and I'm being symbolic about a future sacrament that the church will practice. No, he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Jesus is asking the people there to cannibalize him. And everybody says, this man is not trustworthy, and they flee. Except the 12. The 12 remain, and Jesus says, why do you not also go with him? And Simon Peter, as he is wont to do, speaks up. And when he does, he says, where else are we going to go, Jesus For you have the words of eternal life. And and, and so Job and Simon Peter both resound with this idea that that maybe we don't worship God just because he seems good. And, And maybe we don't worship God just because he makes things easy for us. We worship God because he is the God. And he's the only one with the words of eternal life. So we must hope in him. There is no other place to hope. Because of the covenant commitment he has made to us, we don't have to worship God. We don't have to have our worship of God be dependent upon his apparent goodness toward us. We can worship God simply because he is the only God and our only hope. We can worship knowing that he is trustworthy, faithful, and constant. An example of that is, as I said, communion. We don't take communion only on weeks when we feel God's love in our spirit and in our emotions. Nor do we only resort to it as a measure to make us feel better in times of deep sin, sorrow, or desperation. We take communion weekly in order that we might always look to heaven for salvation rather than running to, the, to other saviors, ineffective, less wild, or even ourselves. Job could have easily put his hope in his friend's advice. He could have put his hope in another God, maybe one that he even crafted with his own hands. He could have put his hope in his merit, his righteousness, his good works. Or he could have given up hope and run to an emotional savior or substance in relationship or drink but he didn't do this. He put his hope in God, the same God through whom he was slain, because that's the only God. 
that God would eventually, however, be slain for Job and for many, including you. We can also learn from Job that we can suffer honestly. Job throughout the book really is honest about his suffering, but we see that very specifically in verses 20 and 21 as he says, My friends score me, scorn me, my eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. He weeps and he hopes. He moans, but he trusts. And we can learn from Job here. We don't need to hide our maladies or mask our trials. We can openly reveal in conversation with others and in prayer how bad things really are or how difficult they may seem. And in that, as Christians who don't operate on a moralistic standing, we can remind each other and ourselves gracefully to look for hope in God because he is our salvation. We can also take from this that in verse 22, Job seems that tomorrow is not guaranteed and so he's going to live as if today is all he has. For the Christian, we must learn that this is not our response to suffering. To be fair to Job, he didn't have a, a, a true framework of thinking about the afterlife. And he certainly didn't know that Jesus would rise from the dead. But as we suffer as Christians who live in a resurrection life, we must, we must not think that today is all that we have because we look toward the future glory of what is to come. As Christians, we must live in the tension of not worrying about tomorrow whilst hoping for the revealing of glory tomorrow or the next day or whenever it is that our Lord Jesus returns. So I'll close by saying this. Job's friends were moralists and they had an unhelpful view of suffering. The gospel is not moralistic. A moralist would look at Job's suffering and the cross as scandalous. But Christians, we're not moralists. We don't believe in karma. We believe in suffering as a mercy and as a vehicle of redemption. Suffering is always pointing toward redemption. It has done so since it entered the world in the Garden of Eden, and it will continue to do so until suffering is finally and fully abolished when he returns. So if you're suffering, there's hope. Look toward heaven. If you're not, and those around you are, don't be a miserable comforter. Offer grace. Offer intercession. Maybe just offer a hug. And if you're in the room and you struggle with moralism or you struggle with this idea of suffering because you don't yet have a hopeful framework of thinking because you haven't trusted in the sufferings of Christ on your behalf, I would invite you to do so. I would invite you to find hope in the suffering servant, Jesus. 
because your voice and your blood can cry out for vindication, but his voice and his blood have already considered you vindicated if you put your hope in him. So as we take communion, regardless of of whether you're in a season of joy or sorrow, a season of personal holiness or inward sin, would we confess, repent, and look toward heaven as we partake in grace, as we partake in the hope of our salvation? Because we get to do that as a church every week. So let's find joy in it, even when it's not fun. Let's pray. Lord, you're good. We say that over and over and over again, sometimes just trying to convince ourselves that it's true. Teach us that it is. Lord, by your spirit, would you reveal Jesus to us in a way that we can find hope, salvation, and joy. Spirit, illuminate our hearts to worship you simply because you are our only hope and you're trustworthy. And as we take communion and and partake in this sacrament that consummates your covenant with us to save us, would we find joy and peace and hope in those things? We praise you for your faithfulness and your blood that speaks in far louder word than Abel's, Job's, or our own. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.